0: You are tuned to Nerd Noise Radio Channel F. Today we have for you highlights from the soundtrack to Stray for multiple platforms composed by Jan van der Kroysen. Broadcast of the Masters of EGM Season 2. <music> morning VGM lovers, this is St. John from Nerd Noise Radio, and today I have for you a Channel F. Now what exactly is a Channel F, you may ask, besides a mid-70s home console by Fairchild, which predates and underperforms even the Atari VCS 2600, that is. And is that where we got the name for it? Well, I'm glad you asked, or let's at least pretend you asked. First, yes indeedy that is where the name comes from, and second, it's our mechanism for betas and bonuses and things that just don't fit the mold of a standard episode. They're our relief outlet for when we want to either do something off-script, or something that doesn't make sense to assign to an official numbered episode, or when we want to augment a numbered episode with additional content on the same theme. Like we did in 2020 for Backtracks, our collection of VGM played in reverse, which was only ostensibly an April Fools gag. Or when we want to try out something new that could maybe someday become its own official channel, aka a separate recurring program. Indeed, Channel 2, which officially debuted in September 2020, actually began life this way and was really just the fruit of a December 2019 episode, as I'm calling them. Ha, <laughs> get it? Episode as in F episode? I'm so clever. I really need to be in marketing. Anyway, the 2019 episode was, at the time, Only intended to be a fun one off for Hugh and I to explore a theme that was interesting to the both of us and in a way that was also novel for both of us. And yet, it eventually got promoted to a regular periodical with its own billing and logo and slogans and schedule and so on, which I doubt either Hugh or I really envisioned ever happening back in 2019. I mean, you know, for me, back of the head and all, but I certainly wasn't counting on anything anyway, you know? And so, if it happened once, then you never know when it might happen again for some future outing. And who knows, if a big enough crush of people come pounding down my door about it, then perhaps a year or so from now I'll be waxing romantic about this episode as the birth of some future Channel 3. I don't know if I have time to work a Channel 3 into my schedule, but, you know, who knows. Well, at the very least, I can assure you that there are no secret plans of this moment to do so. But ultimately, Channel F is our mechanism for wildcards, you might say. And as such, they can really be anything. Take on virtually any shape, cover virtually any topic, and occur as frequently or as rarely as they want. (laughs) I mean, not that I would ever actually do this, but for the sake of the argument, I could hypothetically do a Channel F about soup in a three-act, musical, radio-drama format. Well, at least I don't think I ever would. I mean, you know, stay tuned, I guess, but Please, nobody hold your breath for this, as I can already see the death-from-suffocation lawsuits piling up. Channel 2 has pretty much stayed locked to its particular format with only very trivial deviations, and Channel 1 has only deviated meaningfully from its standard format like five times in its entire run, and only for ultra mega special circumstances, you know, C1E50A, C1E50B, C1E60, and the St. John's picks Best of 2018 and 2019 outings for The Curious. And we only expect for it to happen, you know, maybe twice more in the entire remaining life of the show, which is planned to wrap up in late 2026. And at the very end of that, at that, when we have our show wrap-up spiritual sequels to the C1E50 pair, you know, basically C1E50 for the second half of the life of the show. But with Channel F, something unlike a channel 1 or two is to be expected. So this broadcast is not going to follow the format of either of our formal programs, but instead it's going to do its own thing. Though it won't precisely follow the format of either of the following shows either, probably a closer loose approximation to what you're about to hear would be either you know either an old episode of the dyad presents, or the original pre Nerd Noise Radio style format of Trey Johnson's WART radio. I'll come on, I'll talk a bit, and then we'll hear a track or two or ten, and then I'll be back to talk some more. It'll also likely feature a mix of scripted and unscripted interjection, where channel one is almost 100% scripted and channel two is almost 100% unscripted. For the scripted portions, like pretty much this entire intro, I'm going to make a very deliberate effort to not slip into my channel 1 smooth radio affect, which, you know, after all these years has kind of become muscle memory for me as my default, I guess, reading a script voice. Uh, but But I'm instead going to at least try, I'm going to make a focused effort to read it with something much more approaching my natural speaking voice. And, you know, apologies above all if we end up with some really awkward vacillation between the two. Uh, So, now, one last quick caveat before we get to what this whole thing is about. You know, I think I might have bit off a bit more than I could chew with planned MoVGM contributions this year and have kind of painted myself into a corner. The Channel 2 MoVGM is still in coming, and Channel 2 episodes are by far the most labor-intensive production for me. Moreover, my teenager August is urging us to release on the 29th specifically so that it can release precisely on their 16th birthday which interestingly enough also just so happens to be the precise 16th anniversary of the U.S. release of the first-gen Apple iPhone. That's right, August is an iPhone baby. Even though, uh, even though I'm an Android user myself, I so love that birthday connection between August and the iPhone that I really have no real intention to try to persuade them over, as it were, to the dark side. But that doesn't apply to you, dear listeners. So switch to Android. There. I made my pitch. Persuasive, wasn't it? See? I told you I really needed to be in marketing. You know, uh, perhaps I'll hold off on releasing this until we have better clarity on when that channel 2 will be ready, so that if the need arises, I can wait to release this episode on their birthday instead, and that way we have a birthday episode regardless. And if so, happy 16th anniversary, iPhone. (laughs) I mean, uh, happy sweet 16 kid. I love you. Anyway, with myself overbooked and uh, a much more pressing commitment imminently looming, and with this being Quote unquote, just a bonus episode with official numbered episodes being quote unquote higher tier content. I am cutting some corners on today's production. In terms of the content, yes, but more so in in the fineries of the production. Yes, my dear listeners, you did just hear me slather a coat of polish over this one's a rush job. I'm going to be rich from this marketing gig, I tell ya. Now, in my typical productions, uh, when I need to extend a track, I typically make a great effort to make it a seamless, continuous extension. Whereas on, on this cheater one, I'm just going to do repeat one when I need to extend something out. And it'll it'll end, and then a fraction of a second, start again, blah, blah, blah. Tacky, I know. But, you know, tick-tock, tick-tock and all. Editor's note, I uh, forgot to mention fades. I also typically go way out of my way to make sure my fades are really good and clever. But for this one, I'm just going to stack them. And try to stack them in a way where they kind of organically transition reasonably well. Uh, but I forgot to mention that in the main recording. I'm also going to do the bare minimum of post-production of my voice. Uh, only cutting out mistakes and super weird pauses. So, apologies for going full Darth with the heavy breathing and everything. I really do, I really am a heavy breather. God, I really am. Uh And and as for finessing the tracks, you know, probably just the barest minimum, you know, a quick normalize and amplify and and that's it. I usually do my level best, (laughs) no pun intended, but that's great, Uh, to ensure that all tracks are as perfectly consistent volume levels as I can manage. And and I don't think I'm going to worry so much about that today, though I will at least make sure they don't vary wildly, except for one track where it being so much louder is actually part of the whole point behind it. But I'll warn you first before we get there. I also usually make sure that tracks shorter than two minutes long loop at least twice, but most of these are shorter than that, and don't loop twice. So I think but I think I will forego that concern this time as well and just let them loop just the once. Now, obviously, none of this has applied to the track playing in the background right now, but that's that's simply because it's a 15-minute continuous loop I found on YouTube that I find myself listening to frequently in the wild. Or in the kingdom, for those of you who, like me, are finding it so much harder to podcast now that the new Zelda's out. Sadly, it'll be the only time we have this level of luxuriousness in the episode. And it was even someone else's work at that, one YouTuber named Chill Out Gamer. So thanks COG. Anyway, caviar emperor and all that jazz on today's production quality. <laughs> yes, I did do that on purpose. And so finally over the river and through the woods to the theme of today's episode we finally get. Today, for your listening edifatainment pleasure and for our second contribution to the Masters of VGM Season 2, which looks at undersung heroes of VGM, I have hand-picked what are, in my estimation, the highlights to the fantastic soundtrack to the breathtaking game Stray, which released last year to acclaim on all active PlayStation platforms and PC, and with an Xbox port incoming, and was composed by Jan van der Kroysen, who sometimes also goes by Marusk, and or Nurikabe. It also has the distinction of being the very first game I ever beat on the Steam Deck, so it has that very special place in my heart. Moreover, it was the game that saw me through a a somewhat rough but ultimately beneficial life experience. If you're listening to my voice, please take heed and take good care of your teeth. I had neglected dental care for years, and in August of last year ended up having, I don't know, like eight of them pulled. Now, Fortunately they're all in the back, so whenever I wear my partials I look perfect. But it was still a situation I'd rather not have gone through, and rather you not go through, and this game was the thing that got me through what initially were very dark days. Incidentally, when I record my voice for the show, I take my partials out because I am slightly slurry sounding when I wear them. Insert this is what I sound like when I'm wearing my partials clip here, and this is how I sound with my partials in. I I don't think it sounds too bad. I think it sounds pretty close to normal. Uh, you know it. It's a little slurry I mean you know sibilance slur uh, slipshod I you know I mean I can hear it when people when I talk to people they say they de- they can't notice anything out of the ordinary but but I do and and it it comes in on the recording and all that stuff now I'd said I had all my front teeth and that's true enough uh, you know all my all my front front teeth are here but on the upper left where the teeth stop is close enough to the front that unless I have like a Sam Elliott beard or just open my mouth the bare minimum to say the bare minimum, uh, I'm going to show gap. And so in public, I'm degrees of magnitude more self conscious about showing the gap than I am about having a slight slur with the partials in. You know, but for the podcast where you guys don't see me, you just hear me. You know, my goodness, why don't I take them out so I can sound perfect and you guys aren't going to see a thing, right? But anyway, this is what I sound like with my partials in. Now there were a handful of non-stray tracks that I had initially planned to include in the episode that either bore striking resemblances to stray tracks and or I thought were helpful, instructive, and or illuminating to what was going on behind the stray tracks. But as that list expanded beyond just Streets Rage 3 and kept getting longer and more varied, it became really difficult to decide what was important enough to include in what should be relegated to links in the show notes instead. Also, believe it or not, this would have involved the theme song to Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting, which I feared including because uh, the current copyright holders have a similarly litigious reputation to Nintendo, we'll just say. Speaking of the lawsuits piling up. So what I've settled on instead is putting all those tracks, along with the relevant stray tracks included in today's outing, into a super bonus that we'll release exclusively on Archive.org, and I'll, and I'll be sure to include the links to that in the show note, and, and then simply re, simp- simply reference them as we go along on this episode. And I'll wait till later in the episode to explain the role of super bonuses in Nerd Noise Radio, because I really am running on way too long here in this intro, as I always do. God, I always do. Uh, but I, except that I think I've already told you the most important part—that they're archive exclusive. So there is much more to say, and, and fear not, I will say it, or perhaps fear so. <laughs> but let's break. Let's break for now in order to introduce our opening track and move on to the second. You've been listening to Suitcase, and it is one of my absolute favorite tracks in the entire game. Uh, you know, top two or three for sure. It's so dancy and catchy and infectious, but it's just a little weird and buggy, like, like something is just ever so slightly not quite right. And that chaos base, as I call it, uh, reminds me vaguely of works I've heard from my favorite German loop group, Jazzanova, though attempts to find tracks that really nail that, that exact same vibe were a lot less successful than I thought they'd be. Probably the closest I found was the track Let Your Heart Be Free, which will be included in that archive super bonus. Our next track takes things in a wildly different direction, which I'll explain on the rejoinder. It's the track you hear when you very first start playing, and was featured on NPR's Hearts of Space through my recent second collaboration with them. Here's a little number called Inside the Wall. And that was Inside the Wall. As I had said, this was the very first piece of music that you hear in the entire game. The game opens with you playing as a very lifelike cat, laying in an alcove of sorts with other cats, and then you set off as a group, leaping from pipe to pipe as you walk along the outside of the walled city, which becomes the focal point of the game's story. And right as you and your feline friends first set out on your adventure is when this track starts playing. It generally finishes playing and does not loop again, before you reach this tranquil introductory sequence's anything-but-tranquil conclusion. As your cat fails to stick the landing on a precarious jump, slides down a slope, and disappears dramatically down into the walled city where you will spend the rest of the game. Now, one of the many reasons the soundtrack is so fascinating to me is that it's actually two separate soundtracks to the same game, which weave in and out of each other masterfully. It's also, with the arrival of this game, that the concepts of extra-diegetic and intra-diegetic first really hit my radar. Or, at least, the first time I really had words for them, you know. Intra-diegetic means something that's happening inside the story, where extra-diegetic, of course, therefore, means something happening outside. You, you know, you can, you can think of a narrator standing off to the side of the stage, interjecting things to the audience at key points of a story, as an example of extra-diegetic. Unless, of course, one of the characters interacts with it, and then it's intradiegetic. In the case of music, if it's only there to set the mood for the audience, and the characters in the story can't hear it, if it you know, if it doesn't exist in the story itself, then it's extradiegetic. Whereas if it's something the people in the story are listening to and are possibly engaging with, it's intradiegetic. For many people, including myself, Roseanne has become a tremendously problematic figure in recent years. But perhaps the best example I've ever seen of breaking that fourth wall between intra and extra music is actually from an old episode of her eponymous 80s and 90s sitcom where something bad would be about to happen and there'd be the stereotypical old-time TV dramatic stab sound, you know, the dun dun dun, but everyone would stop and look around and try to figure out where that music was coming from. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hilarious example of typically extra-diegetic music suddenly becoming intra-diegetic. The 2001 Macromedia Flash video, the demented cartoon movie, which some of you might better recognize as that show with the all the zeke boogie doog stuff going on. Uh, it, you know, I'll try to include a link in the show notes. Uh, anyway, it made a very, very similar joke towards the end. And as for VGM, the v- vastly vastly overwhelming majority of music is extra diegetic and it's a distinction most people rarely ever even think about you know if ever I, I didn't really think about it before Stray but y- if you think about it you know Mega Man isn't rocking out to Airman's theme for instance you know so so Link humming Zelda series themes while cooking in Tears of the Kingdom is another great example of comedically breaking that intra-extra barrier as, as certainly he wasn't actually listening to that overworld theme in the OG Legend of Zelda like we were right or was he? Anyway <laughs> Anyway, the overwhelming majority of today's episode is going to focus on Stray's intra-diegetic music. Not because the extra-diegetic music is deficient in any sense. In fact, it's masterful. Complex, moody, ambient, brilliance. But it is instead because there is just so much going on with the intradiegetic music, both sonically, conceptually, and story-wise, that it has collectively become nothing short of one of my all-time favorite experiences in the history of VGM, period. Stray as a game, in mechanical terms, is a perfectly fine game, but it's the story circumstances and the audio-visual aspects that make it truly great, like, you know, though enjoyable, the quote-unquote game-proper aspects of Stray are its weakest link, and perhaps its strongest is the music and sound design, and, and this great extra and intra duality. In fact, though you may not have even realized it yet, you have actually already heard an example from each. Inside the wall here is from the game's extra diegetic soundtrack, whereas Suitcase is from the intra, I'll talk more about what makes the intro-diegetic soundtrack so amazing when we get back to it. But since we're only going to look at the extra-diegetic soundtrack just the once today, and just very briefly, let's turn our attention to it now with a mini-block of purely extra-diegetic music. You'll hear Town Square, followed by The Notebooks, then Courtyard, followed by Raconium, and then finally Clean City. This will also likely be the longest period of uninterrupted music without my talking in the entire episode. It'll also be the spaciest, most ambient period. So go grab yourself a drink and a snack and find some place comfy to sit or lay down and grid your lions. (laughs) Yes, again, on purpose. To soak in some great ambience that, you know that if you think about it, none of the characters in the game ever had a chance to experience. So we'll catch you on the flip side. And that was our look at the Stray Extra Diegetic Soundtrack. You just heard Town Square, The Notebooks, Courtyard, Raconium, and Clean City. As I'd said before, the Extra Diegetic Soundtrack is masterful. It brilliantly presents the vibe of wandering a broken down world where humans have long since died out, and the robots they created are all that's left behind. You know, robots who are doing their very best to imitate the humans that created them and the lives they lived. The robots themselves are never hostile to you, though they are occasionally frightened by you. However, there are creatures that you will find in certain parts of the game that are hostile and will seek to kill you. The extra diegetic soundtrack has pieces for those places too, including this awful sewer area about halfway through the game with giant eyes all over the wall. But the reason that the intra diegetic music, which you will find playing on radios and on TVs and the houses and the shops and the bars all throughout the walled city is so magnificent to me is because of what they represent and both the in-game and out-of-game things that are going on behind the scenes with them. In-game, they are the fruits of robots doing their very best to imitate the music of their human creators, coming tragicomically so close to and yet so far from the things they're attempting to mimic, much in the same way that we still have something of an uncanny valley that exists between AI-generated art and human-generated art today. And out-of-game, they're this delightfully weird circle human composer trying his damnedest to get inside the head of a theoretical AI composer, which is in turn itself trying its damnedest to get inside the head of human composers. On balance, I think that Jan van der Kruysen does a spectacular job of trying to capture that so-close-but-so-far robotic work, which features weird note patterns or voicing choices, and arrives at something of a wonderful quirk, or endearing jank, that very convincingly fools you into thinking, Yeah, robots totally wrote these. Think back to what I had referred to earlier as the chaos space, as well as some of the weirdly swirling and ascending melodies in Suitcase, our episode's opening track. Though some pieces much more or much less so than others, each and every track from here on out will feature at least some degree of quirk or jank or weirdness. My apologies to anyone who this puts off, but as for me, who, who has inside of him this experimental or weird music vein, in and among my bigger tastes in the panorama of music I like more broadly, the quirk here strikes me personally as delightful, and I suppose, I suppose you could say land somewhere closer to kink than to ick for me. Sometimes the robots miss the point more profoundly than others, and as you might expect, they, they probably struggle most mightily with the concept of romantic love. We'll open our look at we'll open our proper look at the intradiegetic soundtrack with what I personally believe to be the greatest, most extreme, most hilariously sad, so close but so far example of almost getting but completely missing the point. With this game's example of I'll call it attempted make love music with the hilarious title Baby Download. The weird grinding almost modem scream sounding sounds and the hilariously off-point melodies and solos You know, at least it's sorta kinda funky, so it doesn't 100% miss the point. Only 90%. (laughs) These poor, poor robots. That was baby download. I do understand that most babies take about nine months to download so hopefully the internet doesn't go down in that time. And as always for anyone whom this track gave an active DHCP server lasting longer than four hours, please seek urgent technical assistance. Yet again I see them lawsuits piling up. As for me and my personal reaction to this track, let's let's make that right brain left brain distinction between simple hedonistic listening enjoyment an Abstract Concept Porn Fetish Magic. In the case of the former, I most certainly enjoy this track, yes, of course, but it is far from my hedonistically favorite piece in today's collection. You've actually already heard at least two or three tracks, which I like even better, and with many more to come. But in the case of the latter, this is absolutely far and away the number one track in this entire soundtrack, so far as I'm concerned. Nothing in this game captures that robot's superficial, millimeter-deep pseudo-grasp of nuanced human concepts such as erotic love. <clears throat> really, if you think about it, this is about precisely what you'd expect a robot to come up with in attempting a musical treatment of the subject. In fact, though a very bold statement to me, I'll go you one better. From the perspective of abstract concept execution in VGM, this one may be my absolute favorite piece of all time. Bar none. It's that brilliant. But you know, so much of the intra-diegetic soundtrack is similarly devastatingly clever, devilishly witty, and slyly insightful. And yes, clunky. Also, just like actual human music, the robot's intra music spans many different moods and modes and genres. From here on out, I will, for the most part, divvy them up by these moods and genres and so on. And the first up, will be the closest landing spot to where Baby Download smacks hard into the ground. Funky music. The first track so closely matches that funkatronic tectonic glory of the ToeJam and Earl Sega Genesis soundtrack that I actually include the closest match from that game into the archive super bonus. So therefore you'll hear computational song, then the hilariously named radio edit, radio edit, and then finally the quasi robot rap anthem, Error 22. We'll be back after these messages. And that was Computational Song, Radio Edit, Radio Edit, and Error 22. And yes, that weird digital, grindy, whispery, gibberish voice sound is actually what the robots sound like when they talk to you in the game, only less. God, if it can even be called this. Uh, musically, so. The connections between Computational Song and Toe Jam Jammin' from Toe Jam & Earl are so strong that it would strain credulity to believe they were completely coincidental and accidental. But that's no dig on the track, as it takes the very similar funky vibe, updates the voicings away from the serrated constraints of the Gems driver, and then takes us into its own unique places, including even very, very loosely, very vaguely insinuating just a little bit of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean in the mix too from time to time. I had originally said Thriller in the original draft, and I'm so glad I caught that mistake in the proofread. Our next musical neighborhood is what I'm dubbing the Happy Music Neighborhood, with joyful pieces of music and a lot of that vaguely Sega Genesis-esque-fm synth voice. We'll hear Step on My Shard, Sterilize, Refresh, Eliza, The Kindness of Strangers, and finally the hilariously titled Self-Destruct Sequence Initiated. Now, lest I seem to be making light of suicide, a quick, sincere disclaimer. Dial 988 if you are in America and are in distress, or 1-800-273-8255, or the comparable equivalents in your own land. Seriously. There will always be someone who loves and cares for you, who would miss you bitterly if you're gone, that may not even cross your mind until it's too late. There's always help, and there's always hope. And of course, far less seriously said on my part, there's also that whole bit about I'm saying, the lawsuits piling up again. All right, back in bed. And that was happy music. Feeling better? More uplifted? A bigger pep in your step now? Good. That's what I was hoping you'd say. Me too. You just heard Step On My Shard, Sterilize, Refresh, Eliza, The Kindness of Strangers, and finally Self Destruct Sequence Initiated. I had said out given that this episode was a glorified rush job, which though primarily skimping on production quality nuances, did also skimp a little on content. Here's what I mean by that. In my original vision, I pictured reaching out to Jan on Twitter and asking him a ton of questions about the soundtrack, as well as giving him an opportunity to outright join us, and regrettably I never got around to doing that. But it also means that instead of having 20 plus hours of research and deep diving, it only left me, you know, like two hours. In that process, I failed to find any kind of meaningful or illuminating biography on the person learning only that they were born in France in 1986, making them six years younger than me, and, you know, more than a decade younger than Hugh, but, but probably still older than a great many of my fellow GM podcasters. His tweets are almost exclusively in French, so that discovery does at least make sense of that, as just given the name, I would have otherwise assumed it'd be Dutch. Well, nevertheless, I had seriously hoped to learn more about the person who may well be rapidly becoming one of my favorite VGM composers of all time. So Jan, if you're listening, hit me up and maybe we'll get you on a future episode. I'd also tried to find other music of theirs outside of Stray, and even outside of VGM in general, that I could share with you on this episode. And it's it's less that I struck out and more that I struck a vein so rich and vast that there was no way I could even remotely properly process it in time. So so no non-Stray Jan Fonder der Kreusen music for this episode. But if they ever do hit me up for a future event, you know, we can probably make that a focal point. The things that I would love to ask you on today that I regret being reduced to having to speculate over are Manifold, and we're about to enter into a Sonic neighborhood rife with such questions. But before we get there, one track I'd really like to have asked him about is Uazuma Surakai. So let's hear it and then we'll talk about it, shall we? <laughs> So, Uwazumusurakai, my Japanese is fledgling enough that I, I really have no idea what that means and, and my attempts to translate it through Google are being, leave me quite skeptical, let's just say, not in that it was risque, but just in that it was nonsense, <laughs> but, but that's not what has me so curious about this track, which is probably my top three of the episode. Instead, the thing that I find so arresting about this track is that it literally sounds like a Genesis and Super NES duet to me. The percussion being Super NES, the bass and chords being Genesis, and the little melody riffs over top trading off between the two. In fact, those dreamy lush chords even sound like they feature the ladder effect, making it even conceivable that we're talking about a real Model 1 Genesis here. What I'd love to ask Jan is if real hardware was used, or if it was emulation, or if the Super NES Genesis duet motif was even what he was going for in the first place. As for the piece itself divorced from the tech, I love how smooth and gentle and pastoral and feel-good it is. You know, though it's not an even remotely objectively similar piece whatsoever, the heart magic I feel from this piece is very similar to the heart magic I get from Interlude by Larry Owens, a.k.a. the aforementioned theme song to Bob Ross's iconic, The Joy of Painting. Once again, I'll put that track in the archive super bonus, as well as, crazily enough, the piece in reverse. The way I put it when describing the backwards version was, it's very nearly as wonderful and far more wondrous. I really do love it. And I'll let you see for yourself. I'll let you see for yourself. Additionally, I'll also throw one other piece into that super bonus here that I feel hits a similar heart feel, despite once again not being objectively similar to either piece, and it's a track of my own. A riff I wrote on guitar somewhere in the 2007-2009 period, and recorded sometime in the 2012-2014 window, which is recorded for a planned third video game collab with Jay Cook of Avalon Dreams, but which never came to light as it coincided with the birth of his first child, and you know, being a dad was more important than being a programmer. At the time I had written it, it had been better than a decade since the last time I had heard interlude. And so this is going to be a really weird distinction. But I'm going to try it out. I couldn't remember really how the track went. I could only remember how it felt. And then once I detected that the seeds of this riff, which had initially been born in my hands by complete accident as as if I were a mere passive observer to its birth, captured that same feel, my further flushing the riff out from there uh, happened with the sensations of interlude playing in my heart by design. In any case, hearing this Uazuma Surakai track back-to-back with interlude and my own track, the three have almost nothing objectively in common, and yet they all hit very similar to me. If you hear the Super Bonus, you'll have to let me know if you agree. Moving on to our next segment, though I will frequently interrupt it with intensely interesting interjections because alliteration is always alright, am I right? We come to the segment where I most strongly wish Jan were with us here to offer us insight. This will also be the segment to spawn the largest number of non stray tracks of the Super Bonus. This is the segment where things get really weird and really kind of start going off the rails, where we get to the really glitchy and abstract music. And what it immediately makes me wonder is whether or not some sort of computer-aided randomizer, or random melody generator, is in play here. Randomizers are nothing new. Probably the most famous in VGM is the Automated Composing System, or ACS for short, which was designed by Yuzo Koshiro, and utilized primarily by Motohiro Kawashima for Streets for Age 3. And if I understand correctly, ACS is even a direct influence on the technique taking off in relevant genres outside of VGM. But the Riffology system, designed by Peter Langston and employed by composer Russell Leadleash used in Atari's Ballblazer, predates it by almost a decade. And given my less-than-exhausted knowledge on the subject, could conceivably not even be the first one to appear in games. ACS and Riffology work totally differently, with very different strengths and weaknesses, but we'll save that talk for later. For now I want you to hear the most blatantly random-sounding composition in the entire soundtrack. Untitled, Busker Version. If you're listening or planning to listen to the Super Bonus, the comparative track would be Hidden Song Unused from Sweet Rage 3, which I would actually advise you to hear first. And that's Untitled. For those who heard the Streets of Rage track, they both share very unnaturally random-sounding melodies, and the Streets of Rage example is confirmed to be using ACS. But to be fair, there are other possible, even if far less likely, explanations behind the Stray track than something like ACS. You know, for instance, probably 15 years ago, my, my mother, who's a professional musician, had purchased some, some sheet music software, which would let you write music straight to the sheet, And just to be obnoxious and driver nuts, I took a deliberately, chaotically, arbitrarily, and semi-random approach to writing a chaos piece, which I called Ock, spelled O-K-K, which also appears in the super bonus. So you can hear it as a theoretically possible, though wildly unlikely, counter-explanation. Nevertheless, something like ACS is the far more likely and far more simple explanation. Editor's note. And and yes, in case you are wondering, I am wearing my partials for these editor's notes. I planned this part kind of poorly. I uh, did a lot of talking here without thinking about the fact that it would be the untitled busker version playing on loop in the background for that entire time. So I'm making an executive decision at this point. We're going to go back to Uazuma Surikai for the rest of this talking portion. So hooray. Anyway, game on. I would mentioned Riffology being so different than ACS. The way Riffology worked was that the composer wrote a couple rhythm segments and then set parameters by which the lead over top could behave, and some loose guidelines on when to switch between rhythm pieces and then set it loose upon you to do its own thing within those parameters. On the plus side, once all those parameters were set, Riffology could function autonomously, and also you, the listener, would never hear the exact same piece twice because each time you fired up the game, Riffology would inevitably make different choices than it had the last time you played. It's insanely wild tech, given that it was 1985, and our esteemed composer hadn't even been born yet. On the minus side, it just regurgitates riffs and parameters the composer set themselves, and as such, has no real generative capabilities whatsoever. So, it's basically just an insanely cool parlor trick. In the super bonus, I'll include the Atari Pokey version used in the Atari 8-bit computer, Atari 5200, and thanks to an in-cart chip, the Atari 7800 version, playing in NTSC timing which is faster and more frantic than the PAL timing, but which for this track I happen to prefer. Also, NTSC Pokey over Atari 7800 is how I first encountered this track myself back in 2002, 2003 or so. So it's the most nostalgic and sentimental for me. Also another fun fact, this particular recording of the track, which I get from a YouTuber named Guy A. Person, which is a fantastic pseudonym by the way, also just so happens to be the exact same instance of this track that I used in our very first ever episode of Nerd Noise Radio, C1E1 Press Start, from all the way back on January 5th, 2017, and produced even further back in October of 2016. Anyway, ACS by contrast, as I understand things, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, basically spits out semi-random riffs and whatnot that the composer then distills and finesses and combines and splices into their own finished product. So while it can't be autonomous the way riffology can be, it is also truly generative, creating sounds that as Koshiro-san himself said, and, and, and I am paraphrasing, would be very unlikely to have ever been thought of by a human. And what that leaves you with is a situation where the composer is working basically like any loop-based composer in a DAW, except with the massively important caveat that they're basically lucky-dipping for their source material and leaving that part more or less up to fate. I'm reminded of a non-VGM group that, using completely different medium, did basically the same thing with lucky-dipping their source material and then finessing the chaos output into a slightly less chaotic semi-order for their final product and as such, as I understand it, have been credited with giving birth to the entire glitch genre. Our second German group to get mentioned today, I'm talking, of course, about oval and what they'd do is they'd take CDs, music CDs, and deliberately deface them with anything from Sharpies to Scotch tape to X-Acto knives, then put the purposefully damaged CDs into the player and just capture the craziness that spits out from that poor CD player, trying its best to make sense from the nonsense. And then with that chaos, as it were, on tape, they set about cherry picking, dissecting, and resecting to arrive at their final pieces. And this is my understanding of this is my understanding of how ACS works with Kawashima-san, only digitally as opposed to defacing physical media and brutalizing playback machines. <laughs> In the super bonus, I'll have an example of each a Streets of Rage 3 track and an Oval track. They will be, respectively, Shinobi Reverse from Streets of Rage and Commerce Server from Oval's 1994 album, Für Neunzig Discount, which, as I understand it, just translates to a shorthand for 94% discount. But that's one more thing worth quickly mentioning about Oval. With other track titles like Cross Selling and Shop in Store, or they presaged Vaporwave by nearly two decades with their whole scathing criticism of consumerist culture by way of an ironically, sarcastically bombastic celebration thereof. These guys really were Die Zukunft. <laughs> I'm sorry, the future speaking of the future, let's get to our next track, which will also have a Streets Rage parallel on the super bonus. And now, this is the track I had warned you about in the beginning as being purposefully louder than all the other tracks in the episode, so do brace yourself for impact. I'll explain all this on the back end, but for now, let's presenta the aptly named Loud Music. Enjoy. <laughs> That was loud music. You awake now? Good. So what's the story behind loud music and it being so, well, loud? Well in the game, there's a scene where you need to steal a construction worker vest and hat to complete a certain objective, but the shop owner is standing in the lobby watching, and so you can't steal it because he'll stop you. So you end up leaving and completing a task involving disabling security cameras for this, I guess, sort of street gang. And in gratitude, they give you a cassette tape with the latest hotness. I don't think they use that exact phrase, but it was something to that effect. You know, I mean, this is the latest and greatest, blah, blah, blah. So after you have this tape, you go back to the store where you were wanting to commit your crime. And you find a dressing room in the back, which, wouldn't you know, it just so happens to have a stereo system with gigantic speakers and a cassette player. So you put the tape in. Press play and viola. Loud music starts blasting, causing the store owner to run back in a panic and see what the commotion is all about, at which point you grab the vest and moose. And yes, the viola voila thing did that on purpose too. You know, I, I sometimes also will say buenos nachos to the cleaning ladies as I'm leaving the office instead of buenos noches. I know. I'm adorable. Anyway, that's the story of loud music and why it's so... loud. It's, it's a really amusing scene. But going back to the Streets of Rage and my suspicions of an ACS-like system in play, compare it to the track Bulldozer uh, included in the super bonus. There are obvious manifold differences, but my god, they sound so similar that I struggle to believe it's dumb luck. Let's hear a trio of other tracks from Stray that probably don't require so much elaboration from yours truly, and the congregation said amen. But I, I also feel that this uh, S.O.R. and ACS vibe applies to these tracks. You'll hear ominous music, pressure suit, and the very smoothly titled, a sphere of blue light on a marble floor with waves coming from every direction. Which beyond giving me flashbacks to Pink Floyd's several species of small furried animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a picked, sounds an awful lot like a mid-journey prompt if you ask me. <laughs> Okay, and that was ominous music, pressure suit, and, um, yeah, we'll just shorthand that one to a blue light. Agreed? Agreed. I could hear each of these being perfectly at home in Streets Rage 3 if we but rearranged them for YM2612 and SN76489. Not much else to say about them though, so before we leave Glitch World behind, let's feature a quartet of tracks that are still weird and glitchy but less acutely reminiscent of Streets of Rage. You'll hear Bushido Calculus, followed by sound of something falling, docking ring, and default club sound. Be back soon. That was Bushido Calculus, Sound of Something Falling, Docking Ring, and Default Club Sound. I can only presume that the thing we hear falling is the bass drop, I mean unless you were listening on your phone and then I imagine you really didn't hear much of anything at all. I also can't help but wonder whether the title Docking Ring is another robotic attempt at emulating human eroticism. But who knows? Actually, Jan knows. Hit me up Jan, I've got a ton of questions. For now, let's leave Glitch and move on to our second to last musical neighborhood. The end is in sight. At one point in the game, there's a busker, with a guitar fashioned after what appears to be an old car's gas tank, who just lays on the sidewalk and seems to live there. He has crazy hair, which I have since learned is because the busker, who also goes by Marusk, apparently is meant, in a self-deprecating humor sort of way, to be a representation of Jan themselves, who also has crazy hair. Anyways, an optional completely skippable side quest in this part of the game, the busker asks you to find 8 pieces of sheet music that it has misplaced, and return them to him. When you do, he will then play a thin, tinny version of that piece of music. With all but 2 or 3 of the busker tracks, they are simplified versions of more robust non-busker tracks from the game's soundtrack. You've actually heard busker music already this episode, as we used the randomness of untitled busker version as a question about ACS, in which springboarded us into the whole Streets of Rage section. Speaking in general terms, I'm I'm actually generally not a great big fan of the Busker versions because I don't love the voicing of the instrument. But it's still a fun little side task in the game and another amusing moment, especially when you know what's going on behind it. So we'll hear both the non-Busker and then the Busker versions of Cool Down and Tomorrows. And lastly for this section, we'll hear a Busker exclusive track, and by far my favorite Busker piece, mildly important information. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm gonna go take a potty break. Okay, and that was Cooldown, Tomorrows, and Mildly Important Information, Busker and Non-Busker Examples, were relevant. So that we have a better track to loop our next conversation behind than Mildly Important Information, I'll move on to a pair of tracks that kind of defy classification in our genre breakdown. They're kind of ambient, but not spacey. They're a little glitchy, but not glitch. They're kind of chill, but not chill enough. And so on and so forth. I love both these tracks. But for our purposes today, they're kind of... I guess homeless like the busker you'll hear a static sleep loop and safe mode static sleep loop, and safe mode. Great tracks both, but as I said, a little too ambiguous genre-wise to put them in with any group. I don't have too much to say except that I'm loving them. So let's move on to our final neighborhood of the day, and of course it's one of my favorites. It's chill music. And let's just say that robots do a much better job of approximating chill than they do at attempting to capture anything remotely approximating human romance. Insert Bluey. We know all about romance, Clip.
1: Yeah, it's very romance. Where did you learn that word? TV! We know all about romance. Well, maybe you could teach your dad about that. Outrageous!
0: Well, I think my absolute favorite tracks have have been or will be treated individually. In terms of an entire block of music, I think this is my favorite segment of the episode. They all tend to have a nice, relaxed, Neon nights vibe to them. And they're what gently ushers us into the episode's twilight, and they do it in style. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I do. You'll hear Placeholder World, I Am Satellite, Critical Systems, a track with a name I don't even know how to pronounce, but rather looks like a snippet of code which we'll just cheat and call LDFOF. The track's full and proper title will be in the show notes, of course. And then finally, Binary Sunset which I suppose is an amusing title as well. A very relaxing, if brief, journey awaits. We'll be back after these massages. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. And that was Placeholder World, I Am Satellite, Critical Systems, what we're cheatingly shorthanding as LDFOF, and Binary Sunset. God, I love these tracks. This is the kind of music that I could curl up on a cushion and catnap to, that's for sure. I had mentioned the title of the final track, Binary Sunset. You know, I guess that's kind of a funny idea a sunrise and sunset pattern that basically resembles flicking a light switch on or off. Of course, in the game, in the Walled City, the place does have an artificial sky with artificial stars and all the rest, so so I suppose the title may ultimately be a little less funny and more sad. I won't spoil things, but I will report that the sky does factor happily into the game's bittersweet, and moving ending, even if it does perhaps involve gaming's most disappointing final conflict, which is not really a conflict at all, but rather more of a simple puzzle. But enough on that. Even if I'm not spoiling things outright here, I'm getting close enough to the point where I'm starting to cause a bad smell. Or is that just me? Well, dear listeners, this is almost it. I only have two more tracks for you, and the reason the final track is what it is is because it's kind of like one of those tracks that Hugh will pick for a Channel 2 episode, which summarizes an entire soundtrack within it with a bunch of quotes from earlier pieces. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Before we get there, let's talk about what is either my number one favorite track of the entire soundtrack or at the very least my second favorite. I'll elaborate on the flip side but for now it's time to slow down with Velocity Regression. velocity regression like i said this is either my favorite or second favorite track of the entire score the other the other track is the one we opened with suitcase that one's a little more fun and more easily accessible but this one is deeper and richer while still managing to be almost as fun and catchy first i love the deep more percussive than tonal thump of upright basses in general and i love how the bass notes and the way they bend along with the percussion really creates the sense of juggling the listener You know, like the first note feels to me like it tosses you in the air, and the second note is that peak of the curve moment where the momentum changes from upwards to downwards. The third note is the soft landing, and then the fourth note is the handing you off to the first note to do it all over again. I really love the momentum that creates and how how you actually feel it while listening. Or, Or at least I do anyway. I wonder what herbs actually are in these 11 herbs and spices. Hmm. Well anyway, yeah, I think my third favorite track of the day is Uazuma Surakai, and then first is either this or Suitcase, with the other one being second. Actually, if we're being honest, I think my favorite is whichever of the two I'm listening to at the moment, and right now we're listening to Velocity Regression. So, suck it, Suitcase. Also, you may notice that contrary to what I said in the intro, this track is a continuous loop as well, when I said there wouldn't be any more. Well, (laughs) I've altered the deal. Pray I alter it no further. No, with this one being one of my favorites of the day as well, and also the track we're going to do all of our end of the show business to the backdrop of, I decided this one warranted the elbow grease. And yes, I did extend this one myself, because the only extended cut I could find on YouTube was not continuous. Lastly, for this track, two things. I can't quite put my finger on exactly what vibe I'm picking up here necessarily, but I I definitely get some kind of an ethnic vibe from this track, and one that would put it somewhere in greater Asia, I think. I can't quite name it, but I sure as hecky doodle like it. And two, one other vibe that I clearly get from it that I can put my finger on is that this track very much gives me 90s Weather Channel, Weather on the 8s vibes, which is a treasure that corporate homogeny has deprived the world. This track joins Stage 2 from Ernest Evans on the Sega Genesis as being quote-unquote the most Weather Channel sounding pieces of VGM I've ever heard, and yes, that even beats the literal Weather Channel music from the Wii Weather Channel. This track and and the Ernest Evans track will be the two with which we close out our super bonus over on Archive. Okay, so that just leaves End of Show Business and our episode closer. The first piece of End of Show Business would be to talk about Archive super bonuses and their role in the world of Nerd Noise Radio. Well, first I suppose I should just talk about the role of Archive.org in general. So when the show first started in 2017, I, I put it a bunch of places, and one of them being Archive. Over time, I gradually developed something of a mirror image of click-count fixation, in that rather than obsessing about knowing what they were, I'd bend over backwards to go out of my way to not know what they were. Because both the numbers going meaningfully up or meaningfully down would be too emotional for me, and even if it was a situation where they went up but then went back down to their original levels, that original level would not probably no longer make me happy. So I, I just presume that they're holding steady in the general neighborhood that they pretty much have been over the life of the show, and go out of my way to avoid ever finding out anything one way or the other. Numbers, good, bad, or ugly, will just distract from making the art for the community, so far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> but one thing that was always true, is that the archive numbers were always a fraction of what the main feed episode numbers were, and, and so it just kind of existed off to the side doing nothing. I presume this is because of a handful of reasons. One, I don't think there was a way to subscribe per se, meaning I don't think there's a way to get notifications when new episodes drop, so I don't think there is a way for episodes to quote unquote come to you, but you always had to go to them. And I don't think there was ever a way to get them into any kind of RSS feed to change that. Moreover, I don't think there's any kind of archive.org app. And so your only choices to listen would either be to download the file or stream it over web browser, which the latter is super ucky, especially on mobile. And so it saw very little traffic. Well, one day, a few years ago, it occurred to me. Instead of letting Nerd Noise Radio just rot over there, or worse, just deleting it, Because I feel like Archive will be the only place that has a fighting chance of my show lasting past the collapse of society and the extinction of the human race, I could find a way to turn the lower click counts into an advantage, and so I started treating Archive as a sort of pseudo-insider secret club type thing, and started to do special things over there that I could never dream of getting away with on the podcast feed. One thing I do over there is to release regular episodes early and occasionally way early. You know, basically when I finish an episode, I upload it to the podcast feed right away, but I schedule it out to not release until the intended release date. And then on Archive, since there is no schedule ahead option, I just upload it for immediate release and sneak it out. Any more that often means an episode may only release days or weeks ahead, but I have on occasion had episodes release, you know, sometimes months ahead. You know, the Archive 2022 Halloween episode appeared on Archive in July or August of that year, and the recent May 2023 episode hit Archive in very late February, so you just never know. But if you ever hear me say anything to the effect of, for those of you who know that small corner of the internet where we sometimes sneak things out early under the cover of darkness, you can be 100% sure I'm talking about Archive. And since so few people make it over there, it doesn't really mess up the podcast feed to do this. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. I'm starting to lose my voice from recording this. I did this first thing in the morning, and that might have been a mistake. Anyway, the other thing I do over on Archive is the Archive-exclusive super bonuses. And over the river and through the woods to what these bad boys are we finally get. They're kind of a two-channel-F for channel-F. Or perhaps perhaps you could say a a channel-F is a super bonus that makes sense to put on the podcast feed, where a super bonus is a channel-F that doesn't. There are often also bonuses or remixes of existing episodes, you know, things which I want to make and share with the world, but also things I don't think I should clog the podcast feed with. You know, if you just heard a channel 2, do you really want to hear a music-only version of the same thing right away, which just ends up sounding like a miniature channel 1 without an intro or an outro? Or if I release a 50-track best of 20xx episode, but I had pulled that 50 from a pool of 250 candidates, do you really want to hear the other 200 all at once? I'm banking on probably not on both counts, and if you do, why there's archive.org. By the way, we actually do do this for every channel two episode over there—the music only thing—and have done this and have done the big 300-track special multi-part series things over there at least twice. First time surrounding 2020's backtracks, the aforementioned focus on VGM played in reverse, which we only pretended was a gag to get away with doing it, and the best of 2020/2021 series. So much less convenient and out of the way and clunky for the listener, but also the absolute best place on earth for all the NNR content and sometimes ahead of everyone else. So, you know, maybe it's a little less of a secret now. Lastly, about Archive. The super bonus companion for today's episode will release at about the same time as I upload this one, but just a little ahead of it so that I can get a hyperlink to add to this episode's show notes. The full track list of that supplement will be in its own show notes, so just check them out over there. I very, 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 very much doubt I'm gonna do this, but you never know if a music-only version of this episode turns up over there too. I guess we'll see, but again, strictly no breath-holding without signing a waiver absolving me from any legal liability from suffocating these damned lawsuits. And that's about it. All that's left is to wish August a happy 16th again, in the event that this episode drops on the 29th. Stay tuned for our Mo VGM channel two sometime in June or July, as well as a couple other goodies I'll keep secret, except to say that they will be another channel one and another channel F. In the meantime, if you're not listening to this through the Mo VGM community already, then a reminder to please go check them out at mastersofvgm.com and on Twitter, and be sure to give all these other podcasters some love and attention. Who knows, you may even end up dumb locking into a new best friend for the commute. And I suppose if this episode ends up hitting the feed before June 29th, well then you know which day that Channel 2 is coming out. So I'll close with the track Ugly Megamix. It's what plays in the club scene once you get the DJs activated, and boy does it live up to its name. This mega mix is ugly indeed. But since it quotes so many pieces from the game, including many we featured today, it makes for the perfect roll-end credits sign-off. So thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you found the soundtrack to be an enjoyable, engaging experience. And the, and hopefully you found this episode to be a good format. And hopefully I didn't talk just way too much. See you on Channel 2, and wherever you are.
1: bye the end!
2: Hey everyone, it's Ed from the VG Embassy. It's almost June, and I'm sure you know what that means. It's almost time for the Masters of VGM event. This is an event where for the entire month, all of your favorite VGM podcasts will focus on one theme around video game music composers. This year, we're sharing composers that we feel might deserve a little bit more of the spotlight than they're currently getting there's going to be a ton of shows participating um let me see i have that list here uh hey hey larry you got that list no no not the grocery list the list of all the podcasts yeah what do you mean you gave it to me already no i don't i don't have it i'll look all right Oh, here it is. My bad. My bad. All right. So it's going to be my show, as well as Nerd Noise Radio, Shujin Academy VGM Club, A VGM Journey, VG Emporium, ReVGM, Gamable Audio, VG Mania, Rhythm and Pixels, CRT Sound System, Volt Supreme Synth VGM Dreamstream Machine, and more. More. What do you mean more, Larry? Who are the, who's the more? No, I don't, I don't know. Did you put more on here? All right, well, I guess there's going to be more. If you want to find out who the more is, check out mastersofvgm.com on your favorite web browser or hit up the tweets at mastersofvgm. We hope you enjoy the event.